and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. Eva Clifford is an award-winning, best-selling Australian crime writer of three novels, including All These Perfect Strangers, Second Sight, and now her brand new novel, just released, When We Fall. Published by Ultimo Press, When We Fall is the first of Eva's novels I've read, and I have to say, listeners, what an introduction. This book is tense and gripping with a propulsive racing plot that has you breathless till the very end. A fictitious coastal town is the canvas on which this dark tale is drawn, a town that is as seemingly impenetrable and sinister as the rain clouds that often cover it. If you're a fan of crime fiction, then Aoife's new book is a must read. And so I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with Aoife about her new book on the podcast today. Welcome Aoife. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on the publication of this fabulous new book. How does it feel to have another novel out in the world? Uh, it feels fantastic, actually. You can always have a few bit mixed feelings, mixed emotions when your book comes out. It can be a little bit nerve-wracking, but um, we're at day three or four, I think, at this stage, and so far, so good. And it's been a real delight. I think after all we've been through in the last few years, after what we're sort of going through right now, it just feels like an immense privilege, and I'm delighted, to be honest. Wonderful. So, Aoife, tell me about this story and how it was that you came to write it. I guess... I work a little bit differently from a lot of other crime writers or writers that you might speak to in that I don't really start with a place or I don't really start with a character, which it seems to me is quite common in other writers. And so this one, I I, I started with a few ideas, um, quite unrelated, that I kind of shoved together and then watched the chemistry of them and to have a bit of a think about... um, what they generated and how would I represent that in novel form. So a couple of the very competingly different ideas. So one was quite a serious idea about parents and children and lost children. And it was due to a couple of scandals that I was thinking about it. Um, And one was a scandal that actually took place in Ireland and I'm an Irish Australian. So I was quite interested in reading about it. And it was a local historian in a very small town in Galway um unearthed some children's bodies or babies' bodies that had been um buried not in consecrated ground but in the garden of um an, a baby's home which and baby's homes and sort of the magdalene laundries that probably people have heard about um that event um caused was a national and international scandal caused a lot of soul searching and also reporting and ended up in a a really big inquiry into what was what had been going on and essentially what everyone had been looking at and turning their eyes away from because everybody knew what was happening and, and just was sort of looking the other way. And I was really interested in that human nature side of we sometimes say the truth's buried, but really sometimes it's right in front of us and we're just refusing to see it. And it's not till some generations later that we come to terms with it. So I knew that was going to be part of the story, some kind of re-emerging of an old issue that isn't actually that old. Uh, so I was quite interested in that. And then there was a, something totally different, but it stemmed from a conversation I had with a customer as I work as a part-time bookseller. Now, when you work as a part-time bookseller, most of the people that you meet are a bit like you. 
really into books and and what I call as words people they kind of that's the way they see the world through words and if like I'm a classic like that if I run into something I don't know my first response often is oh I'll go read a book about that and then I'll know some more um, but you do get some different types of customers and some customers just have a very strong passion in one area and so they just come in for the books in that area they're not really reading any wider than that this customer fell a bit more into that category and her passion was fashion now I'm not particularly into fashion myself but I love hearing about other people's passions it's I find that very enjoyable so I was chatting to her about it and it was a biography of a fashion designer that had recently been um, released that was a really interesting bio, uh, memoir and so she was telling me all about it and then she started telling me about how she just sees bits of fashion that really that she responds to and there was one um, in particular that she had responded to that were from 15 years before and she was sort of highlighting to me how how she really gets obsessed about these things and it was a dress that she'd seen in a shop in Melbourne in the window and she got so obsessed with it that she found it in the magazine and she cut it out and she'd kept that magazine clipping for 15 years and she was wow. saying that she had moved three times that time and every time she moved she would pull it out she would look at it again think why am I keeping this but she <laughs> said I just so want to know what happened to that dress and so I was listening to the story amazed because the dress she described was my wedding dress so I was able to tell her give her the answer where it was it was in my house in the cupboard in the box still so we couldn't believe this coincidence because it had been 15 years since she'd seen the dress Anyway, but I brought the picture in and she saw it and it was, it was her dress. So I now think of that as it's now our wedding dress it, because her attachment to it was so deep. Anyway, then she came into the shop again a couple of years later uh, and said, if, if, I was, if I could give her permission, if I was fine, she was actually saving up to get an oil painting of that dress. Um, because she wanted to hang it on the wall and I said of course that I'd, I'd love that to happen so it was that interesting thing of meeting a person who's such a visual person and who had we had a response to the same thing but for me it was all about the memories of the day or maybe the words that I said in that dress but for her it was all about the visual nature of it and her response to it as an artwork in her mind and so I solved her mystery but she gave me the start to this book, which is I wanted my main character to be a words person like me, but then a lot of the clues and mystery to be all situated around the visuals of it. So, and um, so I've got, as, as you know, having read it, but um, old masters paintings in there, sketches, photographs, and tattoos, even architecture. So um, I really immerse myself in the visual. And that was such a fun way to write it, actually. I really enjoyed that part of it. I love that. And, and it's so not what I was expecting to hear. <laughs> no, absolutely not. It's not the usual story. And I, to be honest, I find that each of my books can be a bit different in how I approach them. Yeah. That is absolutely fascinating. So for those who haven't been as lucky as I have and read this book, can you tell us a little bit more about the story? So Alex, uh, who is the main character, is a barrister and she works in the city, but she's a bit at the crossroads of her life. She's recently divorced and her career is languishing, it'd be fair to say. And on top of that, then her mother, Denny, has recently been diagnosed with dementia and she's at the start kind of the, of the dementia journey. And they're two very different characters and it's not that they don't love each other, but they've sort of kept each other successfully at arm's length. They're both very independent of each other. And this diagnosis is forcing them 
to kind of have to reconnect. So Alex has come to Denny's hometown, uh, a town that Alex doesn't know very well, but she does have relatives in it um, because Denny left the town some time ago and left behind her family and had been quite separated from her family. So for Alex, she's coming back and she's going to learn a bit about the family that Denny left behind. But in her mind, she's planning to really just get Denny set up and to make some decisions about can she keep on living independently when she can't live independently, what will they do? So that's in Alex's mind what's going to happen. Denny, of course, has got many has different ideas about that. So they're already a bit at odds. When they decide in a sort of to just go for a walk along the beach to um, clear the air, but when they go along the beach, what do they find but a severed leg with a mysterious tattoo on it? And it goes from there. <laughs> yeah, I actually found Alex to be an incredibly interesting and somewhat unique character. Possibly it's because I was a lawyer in a former life. <laughs> but I also think it's not often that you encounter a female lawyer who is down on her luck like Alex is yeah, at the look, moment. Um, I mean, I always love, uh, in each of my novels, the main character has had some connection to the law. And I love illuminating the kind of people, I mean, and you would know, people have a stereotype of lawyers, of and especially barristers, of these mm -hmm. super successful high achievers, which they yeah. are. But almost every barrister that you would speak to will have uh, some, have crisis moments in their career because it's so up and down. You can be on the, a massive case. It can uh, finish after years of work into it. And then you've got nothing really because the rest of your practice has fallen away because you've been focusing on a single thing. Now, you have to kind of trust that that's all going to come back. It's the real highs and lows. And that's that's a big thing to navigate that people don't think of because they just think of the high pressure kind of situation. But I would, I think, um, knowing quite a few barristers, it would probably be the low times when they all of a sudden think money's not going to be coming in. And the other thing about barristers is it's not no regular paychecks in this profession. It comes in in a huge chunk and then you might not see anything for months and months and months and you don't really know when you're going to get paid next. So those things are really interesting things for anyone to navigate. And so lots of people have sort of mentioned it to me if they don't have a legal background sort of going, oh, barrister's down on your luck. And you go, that's almost every barrister has this experience, but it's never spoken about. The other thing that I was thinking about was, you might remember at the start of the pandemic, which is the time I was, one of the, I was writing, all of a sudden, um, if you were a family lawyer or if you were a criminal barrister, your work disappeared overnight because the courts shut down quite rightly for health reasons, but it just meant a whole lot of people didn't have anything to do. And, and so if you're a solicitor, your work will keep going and there's all sorts of aspects, but if you're a barrister and especially in those, in those really court focused professions. So I was really thinking about them and thinking there are aspects of the law that aren't the traditional ones. You know, it's not the courtroom scene that's been really covered well in um, novels. So I'm interested in the other aspects of it. And of course, the other thing that Alex grapples with in this novel is what happens in a murder case way before even charges are laid and how all those things can have such an impact to what comes next and people they never that's really focused on as well. I think you're absolutely right in saying many people equate having a law degree or working as a barrister to wealth you know it's like if you're if you're a barrister you're immediately wealthy and it's a huge misconception I think and obviously it's a conundrum that you know Alex is squarely <laughs> facing <laughs> and they work as independent contractors you know they're, they're basically relying on referrals from solicitors uh, or briefs from solicitors firms and as you say if they're not if they're working on a big case and you know that that 
that referral system kind of goes out the door uh, mm. while they're working on that big case and then they kind of have to start from scratch again, really. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, no one's asking anyone to cry tears for barristers in this book, but it just is to <laughs> highlight... Know. Some of the things that you might that might not be that stereotype, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There was something in this novel that truly resonated with me, obviously, apart from Alex's experiences. And as a practicing lawyer, it came as a surprise to me to find that highly educated men in positions of power in law firms were prone to yelling or berating <laughs> junior, junior lawyers. Not all, but there was definitely an element of this. And Alex, it seems, has had the same experience. Um <laughs> But she uses this to her advantage in dealing with a bully like Kingsley Kelly, doesn't she? Absolutely. I think uh, hopefully the world is changing. So hopefully the women that came after us won't get yelled at in the workplace. But, I mean, I did find with my experiences that absolutely outraged the first time and by the third time it happens like, yeah, whatever. Like, it's water off a duck's back, I'm not listening to you. And um, uh, I can still remember one particular meeting feeling that outrage of like, I am quitting on the spot. It was actually a lovely um, man who was a little bit older than me, just took me aside after the meeting and said, just don't listen to it. I don't listen to it. I've been yelled at too. I mean, certainly back in the day, there were definitely some quirky characters in older positions and behaviour that was tolerated that was ridiculous. It was ridiculous at the time and it certainly is ridiculous now. And to those young women who are really pushing... um, respect and all the rest of it all power to you and I couldn't agree with you more as you say it it does give you when you have to navigate difficult situations it does give you skills and Alex uses those uh, the skills that she's got so sometimes that's just what you've got to do indeed beautiful now as you mentioned earlier um art forms an interesting subplot to this novel um in particular is your reference to the famous painting by Dutch painter I, I assume he's Dutch uh Peter Bruegel I'm not sure that I'm saying that correctly Peter Bruegel the elder and the painting in particular that you focus on is called Landscape with the Fall of Icarus now tell me about the significance of this painting as a theme in your novel well it's if um people get a chance to see it landscape with the fall of icarus it's a beautiful beautiful painting and the reason i loved it was i was actually listening to another podcast about writing and it was the wonderful english writer laura cummings who's an art critic for the observer and she was just so so i was listening to the words once again the words and not the visual i did that wasn't looking at the painting at the time but as she described the painting to someone else I thought I really understand this painting because this painting is structured like a crime scene. So if I can try uh, not nearly as well explain the picture in um, words, the picture is of a landscape. We see a farmer tilling the crops um, and that's what you see first and he's wearing quite a bright red shirt. So this is all artistic clever, uh, cleverness to capture your attention first to the, to the red and then to look at the farmer. And you sort of think, what a beautiful scene. And then you go down and there's a fisherman fishing and there's a shepherd. And then in the, off in the distance, there's a village and um, they're by the sea. And these amazing, um, beautiful ships are sailing towards the village in the distance. And you sort of think, this is a beautiful picture. What a, what, what a stunning piece of art. But then you notice something very small and very tiny that's happening in the sea and it's it's only it's one leg it's a little tiny foot um, and some waves and some feathers and it is the um, Icarus falling from the sky so it references the Greek myth 
of oh, or the Roman myth. I shouldn't. I should know that Greek myth. I think of Icarus and his wings that he has made, and he's flown too close to the sun, and he has fallen in. So I just absolutely loved that. It was so such a beautiful description she gave, and it was that moment. You know, it's a bit like the plot twist in a novel. So um, I just thought I've got to see this painting, and so the minute I did, I just fell in love with it, and I got a postcard of it, and I stuck it on my desk, and I looked at it as I wrote this book. And I just wanted to build it into the book. That's something that I did probably, well, it probably wasn't there in the first draft, but I made it in the um, second draft. So I really recommend anyone to um, go search it out. It's, it is a masterpiece, but one of the other things that I love about it, and this is the playfulness and the trickery of art, is that the masterpiece that we know is probably a copy of the original master and it's not by Bruegel, they think. So um, in classic art terms, it's always a mystery and it's always changing a bit. I did look up the, the painting and it's a beautiful, stunning painting. And the thing that's interesting to me is that the fall of Icarus is something that no one's focusing on. In that exactly. Painting. That's <laughs> right. Everyone's Every, looking everyone's, elsewhere. Everyone's looking away. Because I thought that's already the theme that I'm really interested in focusing on. And here we have a beautiful artwork totally devoted to that. So it was, it's that classic of... Um, and then you start to question, are they deliberately looking away? Are they just, is it just like it's a normal day and you just missed it? You missed this amazing moment? Or are they deliberately sort of hiding their gaze from a tragedy unfolding? And it was that kind of playfulness that I really wanted reflected in the novel about that you can be a really good person looking away too. It doesn't, make, it doesn't mean you're a bad person, but when, when good people do avert their gaze from what's going on, terrible things can happen. I think it's fair to say that if Denny and Alex hadn't stumbled on the severed leg that day on the beach, that it's entirely possible the murders of Bella and Maxine um, would never have been solved. I've talked often on this podcast about the fact that behind many crimes are people that know things and are afraid or simply don't come forward with what they know. And as you say, you know, when good people look away, bad things happen. Things that can often have a fundamental impact on authorities' ability to solve a crime and there's certainly an element of this in when we fall, but also I think lazy police work and trying to fit the facts around a predetermined narrative. We've seen this in many high profile cases in Australia. Was this something you wanted to consciously address and why? Yes, I was really interested in that. And in fact, one of the uh, detectives uh, deliberately set out that the first thing Alex hears about him is that he, he is quite lazy. So he'll go for the easy option. I also wanted, I guess, I wanted to put up those stereotypes of um, certainly, and that's her impression. Of, uh, it's an inter another impression she gets of the other main cop, which that he's deliberately covering up. But then throughout the course of the novel, I guess I also wanted to humanise those cops. They're in difficult situations. Um, because you're bad at one thing doesn't make you bad at everything. Uh, and I guess also just the resources, you know, I think being the cop in a, in a country town would be a pretty hard job and having to work out how to live in a community that you are policing. And so you see that he is a bit unconventional at some things and Alex has her own strong views about things and she might not necessarily be right about everything either. So I wanted to play with those ideas and I was interested in them because I think policing is really hard job and it is an easy thing I, I know as a crime writer to have the twist kind of be that the police are the bad guys um, that's a very common technique and so I wanted to make it a little bit more complicated than that so the their 
kind of, uh, they don't follow the stereotypical path that you would think. And they also, in their own ways, I think, are shown to be deeply, even though they're flawed people, deeply caring of their communities. One of the other interesting themes you explored in this novel was the small town puritanical attitudes towards unwed mothers. Now, you mentioned your inspiration um, from Ireland about the, you know, the babies buried in the, in the backyard or in the garden. Now, Robin was one of the characters in this book and she was curating an exhibition on the forced adoption practices that were unfortunately quite commonplace here, in, not only here in Australia, but in, in other countries Absolutely. around the world. Yeah. Um, so was this something you consciously wanted to explore, that, that particular issue? Yeah, in my book, the title of the book is actually the title of that exhibition in the novel, which is an exhibition about forced adoption practices, but it's it's a real exhibition. It's not called that. It's called Without Consent, and it was um, done in response to Julia Gillard's apology for forced adoptions, and they then, uh, National Archives developed this exhibition that then toured Australia, and I happened to go see it in Geelong. The reason I was seeing it was a friend of mine I hadn't heard about it, but a friend of mine wanted to go to it because she had a, a personal family connection to this issue. Once again, as you said, her connection wasn't in Australia. It was about something that happened overseas. And having thought about being Irish and having thought about Magdalene laundries and that sort of thing previously because of connections uh, to my own family, I was amazed to see it was, you know, it's the same story. I had always thought about in the Australian context of the stolen generation, but this seemed to me to be, obviously we don't have the same race issues uh, in the stolen generation with also some of the same terrible ideas sitting behind why that stolen generation happened. But it's like, if you have evil somewhere, it doesn't just stay in that somewhere, it bleeds out and you see it pop up in all these other places. And as you were saying, I think the numbers are like astonishing. I think 250,000 people were affected by these practices in Australia. And it also, that it ended almost overnight when the Whitlam government brought in the single mother's benefit. And so you thought if ever there's a government policy response, like that that so changed the, the trajectory of our country. I also, it made me think as well that once I saw this exhibition, I couldn't help but think, you know, when I was growing up, there were adopted kids in every class, for sure. Everyone knew someone who had been adopted. So it was, it was, it was everywhere. And yet, up till then, I had never heard this discussion before. And it was like, this is once again, us seeing something right in front of us and not bothering to ask any questions about it. Yeah, so that was a hugely important part to me to um, grapple with. And sometimes when you're trying to work out how you think about things or what you make of it, for me, writing a writing it in a book makes me reflect on it and work my own thoughts through it. So in the end, parents and children uh, became an important part of the novel and I explore that in a whole range of relationships in different ways. It can be lost parents, it can be lost children, it can be people who want to be pregnant but can't get pregnant. And then there's the main character, Alex, who doesn't have children and expresses no wish to have them. So I wanted to there to be, when, when you look at an issue, I love to uh, explore it from every angle that I can think of. And, and so that was the one of the big parts of the writing in the book, even though on the face of it, that, that's kind of a subplot almost. It's, it's not the, the main uh, story. Aether, I think you mentioned that this book had its genesis in the first Melbourne lockdown. Was that right? Yeah, uh, that's right. It was definitely my lockdown project. 
at the very start of that lockdown, I was on a Zoom that should have been an in-person thing with a whole bunch of year nines talking about books. And the lovely English teacher said to me, oh, well, this must be a wonderful time to be writing because really what she wanted to do was to try and jab up her poor students that were all looking very dullfully at the camera at me. And I sort of thought my initial thought was, are you kidding me? I can't write anything. I've got three homeschool kids. My husband's trying to run his practice from our bedroom. I'm spending my whole life either disinfecting things or listening to press conferences. I couldn't even imagine it. Anyway, and then that really forced me to go like pull yourself together and just get on with it, lady. Stop being hysterical. So um, I just every lockdown we had and in Melbourne we had quite a few, I just set a really clear project for that lockdown. And to be honest, it was a bit of a lifesaver for me. I mean, I've always loved writing. It's always been a great retreat and solace. And that was fantastic because you can easily get out of your four walls um, when you're writing. And it's no probably no surprise that I deliberately chose a very wild uh, outside landscape in which to base most of the book because it was very different from the four walls that I've got around here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, tell me about Merit. You know, is it based on a real place or is it purely a place in your imagination? Probably the closest place to it would be a bit of a mixture of the Victorian um, coastline, like Great Ocean Road coastline. A stunning place and easy for me to visualise, having been there a lot. Um, and then bits of Tasmania. So some of the bits, there's a lighthouse and uh, other, other, other bits that I borrowed from some of the islands off Tasmania. But I always so far have written about fictional places because I'm from a country town myself and I, I just don't have the heart to put a murder in a real country town because I sort of think, what if mine's the only fictional kind of version of that country town and then it's about really awful murders and horrible things happening and all the rest yeah. of it whereas I would have no uh, no worries about it if it was Melbourne because you go there's lots of books about Melbourne this is just a book about Melbourne so I also I love that I can just then create the town to do what I need it to do rather than feel like I have to get everything right about a, a place. So, yeah, so it is fictional. Aoife, this is your third standalone novel and I can't help but wonder if we might meet Alex again in the future. I kind of felt like we had some unresolved issues to address. <laughs> well, you're not the first person to ask that question. <laughs> I don't know. No plans at this stage. I'm busy writing a fourth novel and it's a different... I tend... I wouldn't say never about writing a series... I think I would quite like the structure of a kind of a trilogy. I love some of the great trilogies that have been written and the beauty of having that longer canvas to do something. That would be a lovely writing challenge. But I am someone who I do really like books where you are really talking about the most important thing that happens to that character, like the most life-changing event. And so whereas a series then you will often have to go for a, a more two-dimensional kind of character in order to, that they are the, they, they're the thing that stays the same throughout the series and it's the world that then changes around them and add, adds that dynamic. For me anyway, that, that doesn't have uh, as much of an appeal as I do really like going off and getting to see a whole new world. I, I would never say never and I, I'm always surprised when people are really go, well, what's going to happen next to it? You sort of go, I don't know. <laughs> so uh, we'll see yeah Aoife if there was one thing that you would want to or that you would like readers to take away from this novel what would it be oh that's a great question I think 
I would just love it. I always love it. And this is probably the bookseller in me coming out. But I love when people feel passionately enough about a book to recommend it. Because I know as a bookseller that personal recommendations absolutely trump the world's most expensive marketing campaign if you've had a friend recommend it to you. So if there were people there who enjoyed my book enough to recommend it on to someone else, that would is the highest personal compliment, I think. So I would love that. That'd be awesome. Terrific. If many writers listen to this podcast and given your award-winning efforts in both long and short form crime fiction writing, I wondered if you could pass on some nuggets of wisdom for people trying to write or to find a home for their work. Okay, well, I guess maybe just detailing how I got started because that's always, it's a start that's hard. And then um, once, you, once you've got a little path for yourself, you can keep on working. I too had these questions, exactly these same questions 15 years ago when I started. And I started in, as you mentioned, in short stories. So um, I'm a very goal oriented person and I work well with a deadline. So I had a news resolution uh, when I was at home with my babies then. And I could feel bits of my brain beginning to atrophy and I was forgetting how to spell. And I thought, right, that's it. I'm just going to give writing a go because I always wanted to try it. I'd never got around to it. So I found a competition to enter. And I would really recommend competitions just because deadlines are really useful things. So it was a Scarlet Stiletto run by the Sisters in Crime. And I just sort of thought, I reckon I could write a crime story. So they always say, pick what you know. And so at that stage, what I knew was kindergarten. So I set my murder mystery in a kindergarten. And, um, and this is a few years before Leanne Moriarty very successfully did the same thing, uh, a lot more successfully than I did. But it is, it was a, it's a cracker idea. Um, and so I, I amused myself no end. I laughed the whole way through writing it. I was on the kinder committee at the time. And we used to have meetings that went from 7.30 at night to sometimes 11.00. And so I really wanted to murder some people. So I got all my angst out in this short story. And so I sent it off. And that was the, I expected that to be the end of it. But I was delighted with myself because I, for once in my life, had actually done a news news resolution. And to my surprise, and probably because no one at that stage had set a murder in a kindergarten, I won the competition. And that was all the encouragement I needed. But I didn't have the brain space for quite some time to write, to go immediately into a novel. So I wrote short stories for quite a few years and it wasn't until my youngest went off to school that I then seriously started working on novels and I was getting more sleep and that helped as well. So, but what that allowed me to do, and this is maybe a more more practical part of how do you get published, is by the time I had my novel published, I was able to point to awards, competitions entered, that sort of thing to go uh, pay attention. I can do this, you know, have some faith uh, that my novel, like to read, go read my novel. And in fact, my agent picked me up without even reading my novel, which is unusual. And I found out afterwards, super lucky. So I just, I caught her at the right time. And also the other thing is in Australia, it's not necessary to get an agent and it's probably harder to get an agent than to be published actually. So talking to friends in the UK and the US, you can't get anywhere without an agent. But here you genuinely can and people have had super successful careers without an agent. I personally knew I wanted an agent and this probably goes back to a bit being a lawyer, um, wanting advice, you know, that kind of, um, I understand the way that world works. And so I was super keen to do that. But I knew even then that if I didn't get one and I knew that was a reasonably likely outcome, I would keep on going anyway. 
if you are a crime author and a woman, Sisters in Crime's excellent. I can't recommend them enough. They've been super helpful. There are lots of uh, mentoring programs and everything to enter, or you can pay for it as well. But I entered one with the Australian Society of Authors men, um, mentorship scheme, and and I got a mentorship with Gary Disher. Now you can't top wow. that for crime writing, <laughs> and he was brilliant. Uh, so that was around my first novel and and he made that process infinitely better and that book infinitely better. And I still I, I kind of still say that he he signed up to be a mentor for life. I don't know if he's agreed to that. I would go look at competitions because and it's more about the deadline and getting things in. I see so many people who make great starts but can't end things. And I think that muscle that I developed for short stories where things will end, that project will be done, you'll put it away, move on, was developed really helped me when I got to novels and that are much bigger to go I'm done here it's time for someone else to read it getting good readers is essential and being clear to them about what you want them to look at I have readers for example and the only thing I want from them is to pick up my grammar mistakes you know kind of thing or um, to, to look at it with an eagle eye for that I've got other readers who will just read it as as a general reader just to go, oh, I don't really understand this bit or that character, why are they acting that way? Um, you know, flag those things. And then I've got other readers who are reading it as editors, you know. So getting your stuff read is a really important process. And I actually love the editing process. I love working with other people to try and make my work as good as it can be. Once you get to that stage, it's super fun. So, and good luck. Some people really find writing difficult and it's kind of agonising. I love it and I would not do any of the rest of it if I didn't love it. You kind of have to love it because being published is can be quite daunting and there will be good aspects and bad aspects. And, you know, uh, if you look at pretty much every good read, everyone's about 3.75, you know, plenty of people putting zero. And so, so for some people that's really tough and upsetting. So putting yourself out there. So if you don't love the writing bit to it, that, become, that, that you know, where you're getting your enjoyment and for me I so heard an interesting thing uh, recently that Johnny Geller who's the Uber agent at Curtis Brown UK described it as separating yourself out to be a writer and an author as two separate things and I really love that and I love being a writer and sometimes then very occasionally every four years <laughs> I put on my author hat and then I take it off and become a writer again and and I, I like that separation out yeah Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing those insights. That's fantastic. No, no problem. Aoife, I was utterly hooked by this dark and twisty tale. It was a fabulous read. I will be going through your backlist as soon as possible and I look forward to seeing what comes next. I wish you every success with this book and thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Uh, it's, it's been such a joy to talk to you and good luck with all your reading because I know it's, there's so much of it and your, and your own writing. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinechanellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.